0: As a child, I attended the circus, and one of the most memorable sights was the lion tamer. There he stood in the caged ring surrounded by half a dozen giant striped and maned cats. There were three African lions, and there were three Asian tigers, Each of them sat obediently on its stool, whether it faced its master's eyes or faced its master's back. And in this instance, a dominion and mastery over every one of the beasts was crucial. A mere five out of six would have ended in disaster. And likewise, some men are very skilled at masterfully subduing and dominating in certain spheres of their lives, while disastrously neglecting other spheres. It's not uncommon for a hard-driving man to masterfully subdue in the sphere of business and the sphere of the church, and miserably fail in the sphere of the family. His imbalanced negligence is a recipe for a disaster which tears his life apart. When I first gave this series in Holland, Michigan, a dear brother came to me after the second message. He's a hard-driving businessman, and he said, Oh, pastor, the challenge for me is balancing my dominion between all of my duties. And such is the challenge of our imaging our blessed God and Maker, who labored, according to the Genesis account, in six spheres over six days, creating a world of perfect symmetry, leaving no realm neglected. And we've been made in His image, and we are to imitate Him. God, we see, for the day He gave the sun for the night. He gave the moon for the sky. He gave the birds for the sea. He gave the fish for the earth. He gave the beasts. And for himself, he gave the man. You see, the Lord's dominion is balanced and even and thorough. And so as we subdue and rule made in the image of God, we need to seek to have a dominion that is balanced and even and thorough. That's our assignment. So we've already discussed three spheres of life in which we need to exercise manly dominion. We've seen the sphere of vocational laboring, the sphere of decision-making, the sphere of spiritual living. And now I hope you have your handouts there. We want to finish with three final spheres, all in the, the domestic area, The sphere of husbanding, of child-rearing, and romance managing. So let's go to the sphere of husbanding, manly dominion in husbanding. Now this is a priority role of a man's responsibility relating to his God-given wife. Now you think about this in Genesis chapter 2. It was not good that man would be alone So from Adam's rib, a woman was fashioned by the Heavenly Father, and the Heavenly Father brought his daughter to the man. His name was Woman. In our family devotions, we try to keep it colorful for the boys. And when I go through this account, I say, you know why the woman is called Woman? Because when the Father brought the woman to the man the man said, whoa, man, in what the Lord had brought to him. And no doubt, when a man is given a woman, he's given a very solemn duty. I only have one daughter. Her name is Abigail, and she is the delight of my eyes. She is so special. She is such a treasure, and I pitied the young man who asked for her hand in marriage. And you have daughters, too. And you think of your daughters in the way that if you're going to take her hand and put that precious hand into the hand of a man, there is a solemn obligation and responsibility that that young man deal lovingly with my daughter. Now, the woman that you have, who lays in bed with you and is under your arm and who holds your hand, that is a daughter of the heavenly Father. And it's a very solemn responsibility that you husband her in a godlike way. But in today's society, which is saturated with feminism, feminism has demasculinized men into being wimp eunuchs whose quest, it seems is to become passive, nice guys. Just nice fellows who, like passive purple four balls, sit around and wait to be struck. Adam, frankly, would be the ideal poster boy for today's feminized man. There he is. You see him there in the garden? When he should be out on the vanguard, standing between himself and the snake, there is this fashionably easygoing husband in Genesis 3. We see him in an unprincipled way there caving in to the misguided desires of his wife. And as he did, he cursed his family, didn't he? And we see this crime reenacted again and again and again in household after household in our politically correct society today. So let's consider husbanding. First, let me give some biblical perspectives. Biblical perspectives. The Bible teaches us that man is to unapologetically be the aggressive leader in his marriage and in his home. We as men are to exercise, again, a holy manly dominion. And notice these three areas here that we need to focus on. Firstly, the issue of headship as we try to screw our heads on straight. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3 says, The man is the head of the woman. It's in the context of marriage. I realize that the feminists will grind their teeth at this, but the Word of God declares it without apology. The husband and the wife, it is true, share an equality of essence. She is bone of our bones. She is flesh of our flesh. We are brethren in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3 says in verse 28, There is neither male nor female in Christ Jesus. We all have a oneness in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is true. 1 Peter 3, 7 identifies us, man and woman, husband and wife, as fellow heirs of grace. There's an equality of essence. However, there is clearly, according to the Bible, a diversity of rank within the marriage. Man is appointed as the head, as the authority, as the leader. This is asserted numerous times in the scriptures. Early on, Genesis 2.23, we find that man names the woman. He calls her woman. Also in 3.20, he names her Eve. In the ancient world, when a king would conquer a city, because he had headship and authority over the city, he renamed the city. The naming of something asserts authority and headship and rule. And so man has authority in his marriage. He is God's appointed ruler. And the woman in that marriage is appointed as an auxiliary ranked individual. 2.18 2.18 of Genesis says she is to be a helper suitable to the man. The woman is to be an assistant of the man. So that's the rank that God gave. Man the head, woman the helper suitable. Now be assured, God did not merely arbitrarily do this in an eeny, mini miny, mo" sense, and it ended up, okay, man is the head, and woman is the helpmate assistant as if there were no difference between the way man and woman were created for their roles. No, to the contrary. Man was created and wired according to his God-ordained purpose, as the head, as the leader. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that the woman, as she verbally jousted with the serpent, she was quite deceived Man, on the other hand, was wired in such a way that he would be the leader, that he wouldn't be so easily deceived. Now, various commentators give explanations for this. I believe the best is that a man, in his manhood, in distinction to womanhood, which can be more intuitive and more emotional, man has a more relentlessly objective bent logical, sometimes overly so, plodding along. The man does say, well, let me take some time to wrap my brain around this thing, as things aren't always so intuitive and so quick. God wired a man to be the leader, that he is the one who is to be the head making the chief decisions. Now, I am not saying that a man is a fool to listen to wifely persuasion. To the contrary, I said, I have one daughter. Her name is Abigail. And I named her Abigail because Abigail is that blessed woman who when David was coming down the mountainside and he was going to, what, destroy every soul that pisseth against the wall in Nabal's house, Abigail stopped him in the way and said, I don't think you want to do this. You're going to regret this later. And David took the wisdom of this wise woman. And that's frankly why I was originally drawn to my wife because she would have a difference of opinion with me and she would disagree with me. And I thought, this is a woman, not merely a little girl. And in the scriptures we see Esther, the godly woman who came into the presence of the king. And we see Priscilla of Priscilla and Aquila. And some commentators say that Priscilla's name is often first in that pair because she may have been more verbal as she, Priscilla, and Aquila taught the way of Apollos more accurately. Maybe Priscilla was more the talker in private and Aquila was wise to take her wisdom. But, though certainly she is our helpmate and assistant suitable for us, we as men need to take her every suggestion and weigh them on the scales of the word of God and determine whether this recommendation is from God or merely from my Eve. The buck stops with us, the men. We have headship. The second biblical perspective has to do with lordship. Lordship. 1 Peter 3 and verse 6. The passage says, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. It's a sense in which we are the lords of our wives. Not in a, tyr- a tyrannical sense, but in a certain sense, we have a lordship. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, be subject to your husbands. Of an elder, it says in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 4, it says, those who would aspire to be and overseeing the church, they must rule, the men, must rule their own households well. You see, we have been commissioned to exercise a benevolent dominion over the earth and the garden, a benevolent dominion. And also, we are to exercise dominion in our marriages. That's why we say with Joshua in chapter 24, as for me and my house, we are lords of our house, not just the building, but the family, wife, and children. So, we are lords. We are husbands. In fact, that word husband, it's the archaic meaning that goes back to one who is a husband over the land, meaning a tiller over the agricultural acreages. And so, we are to be farmers managing our fields and our gardens, our wives. Carefully we are to manage them We are to manage our wives and our families. One man says this, We are commanded by God to be Lord of the garden, and we are commanded to see that it bears much fruit. He's referring to the garden of our wife, her spiritual well-being, her spiritual fruitfulness. And he says, This is what we are to do. We're to husband and not just hang around and be nice, which is what the feminists would have us to do. Maybe you have that man. Maybe you're a coach of a recreational soccer team and you see the wives coming and they may be spitfires, and then the daddy of one of your boys comes and he's just a guy who sits back in the lounge chair and he's a nice fella. The ideal 2005 husband. So biblical perspective, headship, lordship, now servanthood. Servanthood. Simply because we're heads and lords does not mean we are to be tyrants. It gives us no green light to harshness of any kind. We think of how a farmer, when he husbands his land, he loves the land. I bought my present three acres of property from a farmer who lives about a quarter of a mile away from me named Roger. And Roger, he knows every square foot of that property. He knows every little dip, every little ditch. He knows where the sand is under the soil because for decades that farmer bled and he sweated and he cried over his land, hoping it would bear much fruit in soybeans and in corn. And likewise, that's how we are to labor over our wives with a servant's heart. Turn with me to Ephesians 5 and verse 25. We are servants of our wives. You know the text, 525 and following. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We're to give ourselves up for the well-being of our wives. So, as godly husbands, our dominion is not to be harsh, but it's to be characterized by a sacrificial love. Lord Jesus loved us, His bride, to the point of being nailed to a cross, of forsaking all of His comforts. It says in Mark 10:45, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And that's the way that we are to husband our wives. We are to serve them. We're to pour out ourselves for them. This is not harsh tyranny. One Valentine's Day, we had a Sunday school. It was Sunday on the Valentine's Day, and I had asked a couple of weeks beforehand, asked wives to write for me the most romantic thing that your husband has ever done for you. And the ladies wrote things in, and very, very touching things, the way husbands sacrificed and gave themselves for their wives. And one lady wrote how, my husband early in the summer told me he wanted me to run in October what's called the Zealand Turkey Trot. It's a 5k run. And this was a woman who had struggled a little bit with being overweight, but her husband encouraged her, let's start in the early summer, get ourselves trained so when the Turkey Trot comes You'll be able to run that 5K and you'll be able to be in excellent shape. And he pushed her and encouraged her and exhorted her all the way through the summer. And finally, the turkey truck came and she said, After all of that, he ran alongside of me, as her husband is quite an accomplished runner himself. And finally, when they came down the final stretch, she was, I think it was the last person, the last person to finish. And in her little note, she said, I saw that as I was running, uh, I I finished and everyone cheered, but then as I turned back, I saw that a hundred yards behind me, who I thought was the last, my husband in the last quarter mile had dropped way back, a hundred yards. And she wrote in her little note, Andy took last place for me. You see the sense of affection that's coming across from a servant like Husband. We're to pour ourselves out for our wives. We're to spend ourselves for them, for their prosperity. It says there in 526 of Ephesians, that he, the husband, might sanctify her as Jesus did, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. And so husbands ought also to love their wives as their own bodies. And that's how we are to exercise our headship, lordship, and servanthood. That's a biblical perspective. But now, secondly in husbanding, godly practices. Godly practices. So how do we live? So how are we supposed to act in our households toward our wives? One man writes this, Staring at the idiot box, until it's time for sex, is not one of God's appointed means for so doing. And sadly, that is the status quo for many men in our society today. That is passive purple foreballism, a standard expression of it. But that's not us. Here are godly practices. First, assertive talking. A farmer would husband his field, and days gone by, maybe with one chief tool, and that would be his hoe. Well, our chief tool in husbanding our wives, I believe, would be our mouth, where we verbally speak to them. We are to be husbands of our wives, cultivating their minds. We should cultivate her emotions. We should cultivate the soul of our wives with our mouths. Now, in this area of assertive talking, many wives suffer and become barren wildernesses because they're neglected by non-communicative husbands. I'm just not the talking kind. Does some of you fall into that category naturally? That's no excuse. That's the response of a passive purple four ball that doesn't get up and take the hoe and cultivate the soul of our wives. We need to be talkers. Adam, it seems. I mean, it's debatable. Was Adam right there when the conversation was going on between Eve and Snake? Adam wasn't the talking kind. So it seems. We cannot be Adam-like, sitting back in a selfish silence, being stingy with our words, being no comment men. That's... That's not an option for us men. I know there are some who are more talkative than others. We've all got to be talkers. Our example as the ideal husband is the Lord Jesus Christ. You think of the way the Lord Jesus in His earthly ministry dealt with His bride. From His mouth came a river of words. The Lord Jesus dealt with His bride in the Sermon on the Mount. All the words that He spoke to his bride. The Olivet Discourse. He continues to speak to his disciples. The Upper Room Discourse. After his death, burial, resurrection, on the road to Emmaus. What's he doing? He's opening up the scriptures to his bride in such a way that their hearts burned within them. The Epistles are the after ascension words of the Lord Jesus Christ to the church. The Book of Revelation. He's still talking, talking to his bride. and That's the way that we are to husband our wives as the Lord Jesus husbands His bride. It says in Proverbs 2, 6, it says, The Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. We need to be Godlike in the way that we husband our wives. Proverbs 10, 31 says, The mouth of the righteous flows with wisdom. So, beloved, we need to be God-like with our wives. What was God-like in the beginning? He had a habit of having cool of the day conversations with Adam and Eve, didn't he? And we, likewise, need to be in the habit of having cool of the day conversations with our wives. Do you? Do you pull away from uh, surfing on your computer or reading your newspaper. Maybe the kids are off to sleep and your wife is folding wash there. And you put all those things aside and you come and you sit down and you begin to talk with her. You say, no, I've never done that. She'd, she'd fall back faint, wondering what's going on here. Well, we need to do that. We need to have that cool of the day, discussion element with our wives. We need to be assertive talkers. Honey, tell me about yourself. Tell me about how the day went. Tell me how it went with child number two, or number four, or number one. And give timely counsel and words. Need to be assertive talkers, men. Secondly, atmosphere controlling. Atmosphere controlling. I know some men who are very meticulous in controlling the temperature climate of their house. You go to their house, but my brother's one of them. You go to his house, it's uh, wintertime, he's so fastidious about not wasting dollars with natural gas, he, he, he dials it down to 61, 62 degrees, and his wife is walking around in a sweater. He's so fastidious about the temperature climate of his house, but you know, some of us can be very careless, some of us are careful in the temperature climate, can be careless with the relational climate of our house. Meaning, what's the temperature with my wife? Is it freezing cold in my relationship with my wife? Or is it bitter hot, irritation and angry my relationship? Oh, well, we don't take care of that, but we can take care of the temperature. You see, we can passively permit scorching hot irritation or icy cold alienation in our house and we just passively sit back and don't really deal with it. An example would be, a number of years ago during Christmas, just beforehand, our plan was to, my wife and I decided that we would buy a computer for the boys. And so we saw in mid-December a particular computer store selling one at a very good price and I said, I'm heading off now to the computer store and buy the computer, and I'm taking boy number one with me, who was about 13, 14 years old at this time. And Diane said, what do you mean you're taking boy number one with you? I said, well, yeah, I'm taking him with me, because we can see in the newspaper there's a sale at this price. And oftentimes, honey, they pull that bait and switch with you. You go there, there's one computer at this low price, and they say, we don't have any more of those. But come on over here, for only $300 more you can buy this computer. I want to take boy number one, because I want to give him a lesson in holy dickering in the marketplace. That was my priority concern. But my wife had a different priority concern at that moment. She said, but honey, he won't be surprised on Christmas morning. You see, we had two different agendas, didn't we? Well, I'm the lord of the house. And my agenda won the day, and off boy number one and I went to the store. But when I got back, a cold front had moved into my house. (laughs) And I was not a man of dominion. I let that cold front linger for two and three and four days without calling my dear wife into the bedroom and saying, Honey, we got to deal with this thing. But I was in the right, so there can be a sense of my not paying attention to her cold. You see, passivity. Letting the temperature go cold without my seeking to subdue it and to rule over it. Men, we can't let that happen. We need to be men who are making subduing adjustments. There are times when we need to confess. We need to lead the way in that. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we need to have that kind of relationship with our spouse to pursue reconciliation. One man comments this way. He says, suppose a man comes home from work and his wife cheerfully greets him. He had a bad day, so he snaps at her and stomps off into the living room. He reads the paper, glowering for 10 minutes. At that point, he cannot come down, walk into the kitchen and say, Hi, hon, what's for dinner? He cannot act as though nothing happened. His sin affects the joy of the relationship. The fact of their relationship is not affected. They are still husband and wife, but the quality of it is affected. There can be no genuine fellowship between them until that sin is addressed. And we need to, men, manage the relational climate of our households. It says in Ephesians 4, 26, Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Isn't that a challenge? You're tired. You're laying there. Your eyelids are heavy. It's been a long day, but mama ain't happy. And if mom ain't happy, nobody's going to be happy. And so we need to deal with it before the sun goes down. And it may take take 45 minutes to deal with it. You ever just sit in bed and maybe she doesn't? Honey, we we are not going to bed until we deal with this. That's probably just me. I'm the only one. (laughs) We're not going to sleep until we reconcile this. You can be stubborn and bulldog. We have to be bulldog about it. Follow the scriptural principle. You, you let the sun go down in your anger, it's like leaving your front door wide open and a dangerous lion's going to creep into the front door of your family and maul your relationships. We need to be men of dominion. Make sure the atmosphere and the aroma of the household is good. One man says that we must not permit carcasses do you ever have your refrigerator start to stink? What where does this come from? And maybe something crawled under your refrigerator and died. You gotta, you gotta pull honey, would you pull the refrigerator? Pull the refrigerator back, she says. Oh, that's gonna involve perspiration. You pull it back and look what's under there. And oftentimes we got a bad aroma in our house. And we need to get up. Maybe it has to do with. Uh, the in law situation, maybe it has to do with the condition of her washing machine, whatever it might be. Men, we need to get up and be willing to assert ourselves and sweat. And when we clean those things up, she will bake sweet bread and sweeter aromas will waft throughout the house. Atmosphere controlling. Thirdly, responsibility assuming. Responsibility assuming. Now, here I'm not referring to the honey-do lists that our wives may put up on the refrigerator. A past list said van blinker. It needed to be repaired. Gas grill. It needed more gas. And screens. It was spring and need to open the windows. I needed to get to those things. But when I refer to responsibility assuming, I'm not referring to the little honey-do lists. I'm referring to assuming the fundamental dominion responsibility of our marriages. We are responsible for the course of our marriage. Remember that Exxon Valdez ship that ran aground in Prince William Sound up in Alaska and there was that terrible oil spill? At the time, there was an uncertified sailor who was at the helm. But when it came time to press charges, who was it who was thrown into prison? It was the captain, because the buck stopped with the captain. He was responsible for the direction and the navigation of that ship. You know what, men? When our family has run aground, you might say, Do you know how obnoxiously she can act? Do you know how stubbornly she can be? Do you know how difficult it is to live with her and what she's done? But I don't know about you as a pastor or you men as pastors, but I sit there and I say, that's all fine and well what your wife does, but you the man. You are the one as the man. You are responsible for the direction and the course of your family, and you need to take up that responsibility. I'm not saying that our wives are without guilt in these matters, but men, we hold the key. We hold the key as the heads to bringing sanctification to her, to bringing her to repentance, to leading and directing our families. And that's the way that the Lord dealt with the man. Genesis 3.9, sin had occurred in the Garden of Eden. And when the Lord came, what did He do? It says He came and He said, where are you? To whom? And say to Eve, he says, To the man, there's a problem. Where are you? The man he came to. And if there's a problem in our households, there's a problem in our garden, the Lord says, We are the ones who are responsible for it. So instead of crossing our arms when there's trouble in the household, we men can be like touch little boys. Little boys go up into tree houses sometimes, where they can just be alone and by themselves. And Sometimes they can say, no girls on the door. Men can have little tree houses of their own, can't they? There was one man in my church, he would come home after a long day at work, and he would come into his house, and listen to this, the first 45 minutes he would go into the bathroom. And the wife wasn't sure what he was doing in the bathroom, but he says he was decompressing. In the bathroom, for 45 minutes. That was his plan. We can have our own little tree houses too, maybe behind a newspaper, maybe behind a computer screen. But well, beloved, when there's difficulty in the home, we've got to get out of our tree houses. We've got to get at the helm and we've got to take hold of it. For example, let's say that a family has taken up a little side business. Maybe they're selling vitamins, some shackley, The wife has taken charge of this, but this Shackley business, this running north and south and hither and yon has brought all kinds of chaos to the family, but the wife likes it and it's stimulating for her to go off various different places. But the husband sees this is causing havoc in all the household. So he says, honey, I have come to the conclusion that we are going to chuck the Shackley business. Now she, she may weep and there may be discussion, but the buck stops with the man. And even though it may not be a popular decision, sometimes we have to make decisions. In fact, there was a woman whose husband saw his wife was doing all kinds of things. She was engaged in this committee and that committee and that civic organization. And the man said, Honey, enough. You have four children. We're homeschooling these children. You need to focus your attention on the home and cut all these ties. She burst out into tears. She went into her bedroom and she wept there. But half an hour later, she came out and said, You know, Joe, you're right. This is really what I need to do. And we need to be men who are willing to bear the heat of the day and take leadership. And sometimes it just has to do with, honey, you need to come to the bedroom and talk with me about this. Do you have that in your house? Encouragement to you. Don't argue in front of your kids. Don't show a bifurcated front in front of your kids. You want to argue? Go into the bedroom. Close a door. Talk. And that should be a common phrase at your house, I think. Honey, let's go to the bedroom and talk about this. We need to take the bull by the horns in our responsibility assuming. And then, fourthly, in godly practices, sin mortifying. Sin mortifying. By that I mean it's not just ruling our wives and our whole households, but we've got to rule ourselves if we're going to husband well. Proverbs 25, 28 says, Like a city with its walls broken down is a man who does not rule his own spirit. If we're going to be good husbands, we've got to put a bit and a bridle to our own passions, to our pride in our marriage, to our anger, to our selfishness, to our self-pity. You ever have that as a problem in your marriage? Not just your wife going into pouting self-pity pit and parties, but rather ourselves. We need to turn away from it, from bitterness. You see, oftentimes when there's conflict in the house, it provokes us as men either to violently explode or to quietly pout either way, it's a failure on our part to quit ourselves as men. We've got to control ourselves because such things will curse our marriages. Also, we think of this issue of sin mortifying very few things more important than our being men of purity in this wicked and adulterous generation. You talk about taking a knife to the jugular of a marriage. Your wife finds out that you... Don't mortify the sin of impurity in your heart and your life. A wife goes off and finds on her husband's computer all kinds of footprints into evil places. You cut the jugular of your marriage. Remember years ago when Bill Clinton was in the White House and it was determined what had taken place there in the Oval Office, and people were calling in and saying, you know what? The fact is, uh, Clinton's getting nailed for it, but 98% of the men in this country would confess to doing the same thing, and the 2% who wouldn't confess it are liars. When I heard that, I pounded down on my dashboard and said, that is a lie! Those who are men of God and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ are able to gouge out offending right eyes and cut off offending right hands. In our marriages, men, we must be men of purity, controlling ourselves. If we live according to the flesh, we will die, but if by the spirit we put to death the misdeeds of the body, we will live. We must study and labor and pray. and so have a relationship with our wives that as it says in Proverbs 5:19, we can be exhilarated by her love. That that her breasts will her breasts will ever satisfy us. And may God have us to be men who are mortifying sin as a part of the godly practice of being a husband. So there it is, husbanding, manly dominion in husbanding, just some suggestive elements.